Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we find out about the power of appreciating the little joys of life with the author of The Book of Awesome. Well, he has a new book out called Our Book of Awesome, and Neil Pazricha is here to tell us all about it. We begin our series called A Little More True Crime with a look at one of Canada's highest profile unsolved mysteries. Billionaire couple Barry and Honey Sherman were murdered in their Toronto home five years ago this week. Toronto Star investigative reporter Kevin Donovan joins us to discuss why there's been so little progress and so much frustration with the case. But first, we mark the 10-year anniversary of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting by speaking with the mother of one of the 20 children killed that day about the work she's done over the past decade to honour her daughter's memory. You know, there are some events you just remember where you were when you heard that they had happened. Um, and the mass shooting in Newtown, Connecticut at Sandy Hook Elementary School is one of them for me because I was at work. I was in London and it was before the holidays. And before the holidays, when you're a reporter, it doesn't matter where you're stationed, you often get assigned to do stories they can use during the holidays. They call them, they call them baggers. So I was out in the east end of London near Upton Park where West Ham used to play doing one of those, when I looked down at my phone and saw the first news alert about what had happened at Sandy Hook, what was happening at Sandy Hook. Of course, you may remember that uh, a lone gunman had got into the school armed with an assault rifle and killed 20 first graders and six teachers before taking his own life. Apparently, he'd planned it for months. The weapon belonged to his mom, who he killed first. Um, it was a day that is almost indescribable in how horrific it was. It didn't matter where you were in the world when you were reading about it. Um, you know, soon we'd see the photos, the photos of the young kids and the teachers, but the photos of those young kids, many just six or seven years old. And it shook so many people to the core, the country, I mean, the town, the state, uh, that's about 45 minutes north of New York, uh, America in general. And of course, came the calls for improved gun control. But that did not happen. That day, of course, was December 4th, 14th, rather, 2012. That's 10 years ago. Tomorrow. It's the 10-year anniversary tomorrow. Imagine that. Now, Barack Obama recently reflected on his, the lack of action over guns following the horrors of Sandy Hook as the greatest frustration of his presidency when speaking to the parents of children who died that day, who fought for gun control ever since. We would have all understood if the families of Sandy Hook Elementary had simply asked for their privacy and closed themselves off from the world. The temptation must have been powerful. But instead, you took unimaginable sorrow and channeled it into a righteous cause. And in the face of cruel conspiracy theorizing and nasty partisan politics and perhaps worse of all, inertia and indifference, and the TV cameras shifting to the latest distraction, you just kept on going. And you set an example of strength and resolve and grace. Former President Barack Obama speaking in New York last week. If you look at that crushing collage of photos of all those kids who lost their lives that day, it's really tough to miss Catherine Hubbard. She's got the most copper-colored red hair and the biggest grin. And she had her own business cards. 
Can you imagine? Had her own business cards that said Catherine's animal shelter on them. Her title was caretaker. And she used to tell animals, whisper to them, tell your friends I am kind. Her mom, of course, um, to this day, carries on that work in her daughter's honor. She would have been 16, of course, now. Uh, she's been gone, of course, 10 years. But her legacy has been growing because her mom, Jennifer Hubbard, started the Catherine Violet Hubbard Animal Sanctuary in her daughter's memory. They actually break ground on it tomorrow to build these a bigger facility. They've been doing the work for years, but they break ground on it tomorrow to mark the 10th anniversary, a small glimmer of hope on a day that would otherwise be simply a tragic anniversary. And Jennifer Hubbard, mother of Catherine and president and executive director of the Catherine Violet Hubbard Animal Sanctuary, joins me now. Thank you for your time. And of course, um, you know, as always, I guess our condolences every year must be tough. Yeah, exactly. Um, thank you for having me. And you know, the reality is, is that each anniversary brings with it um, just a different period of, of contemplation and retrospection. And each one brings its own new set of memories and reflection. But the reality is, is that, you know, every day without Catherine is a, is a day without Catherine. It's hard. Yeah, I often think sometimes these anniversaries are things that a lot of the rest of us look to, but I always wonder in your case whether it's, you know, I know they have an impact, but it's just, an, as you mentioned, it's just another day, right? Without, uh, what does this, what are you reflecting on this year? 10 years is is a milestone. I had read somewhere that a lot of times people categorize their lives in, in seasons of 10. And so I think that 10, as we approach the 10 year anniversary, I think it's, there's a lot of attention um, and curiosity as to you know what does it look like 10 years after a, a mass school shooting. And I find myself really thinking about all that has changed in my life over the past 10 years, mostly though f- for the goodness that I've encountered. I mean, my I think about December 13th, the day before Catherine died, and my life now is vastly different, but in a positive way, which I'm sure would raise some eyebrows for some. But, you know, I I think that I have experienced the best in humanity coming out of the very worst that any human could be a part of. I've heard you describe it as accepting the compassion that you were being offered. Mm, Absolutely. Yes. I think that humans innately are good. And when we watch another person suffer or experience loss in such a profound and violent manner as Catherine's life was taken, hearts broke. I think that everybody in their own way asked the question or or thought that could be me and ask the question, how can I somehow make this better? And the outpouring of kindness and compassion and generosity that ensued in the days and now decade since Catherine's death is simply overwhelming. You also spoke of of how your reaction in the days following and how, of course, you, Catherine has an older brother, uh, Freddie, who's, yep. and, and that you had to, you had to, you had, you made it, you said you made a choice to get out of bed. <laughs> yeah. Continue, you know? Yeah. You know, and I think that, you know, don't, I, I hope that it's not taken as sort of this callous perspective of suffering and grief. Sometimes 
the choice to get out of bed in the morning is a hard and sometimes devastating choice because when you go through losing a child in so instantly, you know, one minute I'm putting Catherine on the bus, she's ultra excited. And both of my children were uber excited about the fact that Christmas was, was 10 days away. Their father had been overseas and he was coming home that night. And the day was amped up with, with all sorts of anticipation. And in a matter of hours to hear that, that came to a screeching halt and have life completely turned upside down is, is devastating. And the first choice that I had to make was, was I going to get out of bed? Because the reality was, is that there were people in my house that were saying, you know, you, you don't have to. I think sometimes we give permission to allow us to, to focus on all that's wrong. And sometimes we need the encouragement of saying that it's important to look ahead and, and, and getting out of bed was that first step of looking ahead. I had to because of my son, but you know, a choice nonetheless. Yeah. You, you said that shutting down, there was no greater tragedy than shutting down. And I guess you must, I mean, we all must understand that in a situation such as yours, we all grieve in our own way. There is no single path, I believe, to resolving whatever it is that we're grieving. And, you know, I, I was shared a piece of advice that was so poignant um, and yet so simple early on after losing Catherine. And it was, it was simply, no one is ever going to grieve like you are because no one else was Catherine's mother, nor is anyone else in this world, yourself included, going to grieve in the same way that your son's grieving because no one else was his sister. And, and so his relationship and your relationship, and frankly, any relationship I think that is, that is grieved is unique and profound for that person. And so with that piece of advice was an understanding and a permission that while there are certain markers of grief, there is no timeline. Um, and it's certainly not linear. Um, and in accepting that, I think there becomes a gentleness for ourselves as, as someone that's grieving um, or enduring some sort of suffering. But also now, as I have met people and, and see different seasons of, of life where other people are, are in their own season of suffering, there's an acceptance of just them in whatever place that they are. I think that when we can accept that and live in that space, um, we all become a little bit more compassion to the suffering that we all experience. It's it's not just me because I've lost a child in a mass school shooting. Suffering abounds around all of us. You mentioned it. You put it quite poetically. You said simply be, be kind to yourself. Yeah, I think that we we fail to celebrate the the simple successes of healing. And in failing to do so, we just... We lose sight of of the humanity of I'm putting myself in this category that that at times over the past ten years, I was sizing myself up against other people, other families who lost in in the tragedy, and looking at how I was doing in in my progress forward and and I think that's a huge mistake. I think that we just have to be gentle with where we are 
and what we're doing and surround ourselves with with people who we know have our best interest at heart. And sometimes, sometimes that surrounding of, of people that care for us um, may, they, they may share things that aren't necessarily what we want to hear. Like, yeah, it's time to get out of bed. Your family needs you or the world needs you, but so important. Jennifer Hubbard is with us this half hour. She's the mother of Catherine Hubbard, one of the 20 children uh, killed 10 years ago tomorrow in the Sandy Hook shooting. Uh, we've been talking about um, the horrific pain of that day, but also um, the ability to to grieve over the course, course of the last decade, her memories of the last of what has gone on over the last decade, and the work that you've done as well, this this animal sanctuary, this really is a tribute to Catherine and, and the way that she was, the compassion of a six-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Catherine simply adored animals, and so her solitary goal in this world was to make sure that every single one that she encountered knew that she was kind and that they would be safe in her care. And so, you know, she had this little whisper that she would send, um, send them off with, and she would ask them to tell their friends that she was kind. She really believed that if they were able to share that message with their friends. They would all come back to her and her her friends and the creatures that she round, surrounded herself by would multiply. And so in her innocence is such wisdom of compassion and kindness. And so the sanctuary honors her commitment to caring for all of the animals that she was surrounded by, but also in emulating the compassion that she shared with them, the work that we do really and truly helps people, whether it's through our educational initiatives or the things that uh, the programs that we offer that provide direct care to, to animals. We believe if we can emulate the compassion that Catherine had, then those things can be translated into the way that human beings interact with each other. There is something profound and healing about honoring the the human animal connection. And one of the programs you offer, I know, is to allow seniors who can no longer afford to keep their pets the services to allow them to do so. Mm. Which, if which, if you think about it, would probably be it, it would be it would be a Catherine whisper, wouldn't it? <laughs> it absolutely would be. You know, I I for for me seeing these seniors and knowing that the last personal connection that they have um, for many of them to their family is their family pet. Most are widows. Um, Their children are living in in other parts of the country and they have the family pet and they're living in, in these tiny apartments and one financial pitfall or hardship and their whole ability to care for their, their pet is compromised so many of these seniors either one go without care for their pet and thereby compromising the safety of their whole community. I mean, we've got people with pets and green spaces that aren't properly vetted or the seniors are in a position that they have to then surrender their pets. And you know, that to me is heartbreaking because that would be the last thing um, that Catherine would ever want and I, and I think that in terms of what we do, our mission in ensuring that all animals know the, the safety of and kindness of humans, it would be undermined if we didn't take action. So we, we've partnered with 29 um, Connecticut communities. 
When you look at the broader picture, and you t- you wrote about this actually in, uh, for CNN uh, about the broader picture around gun control and so on, you also spoke about compassion. Uh, that so often, I imagine you've seen the cycle repeat itself over the last decade. Whether you know whatever the latest tragedy and horror, the grieving families, wherever mm. they may be, uh, and you felt that there were there, there has to be a way to break this cycle of violence, and the only way to do it is again uh, through compassion. Absolutely. I think that what I've what I've discovered is that in the states, I, I want to say it's it's over 3000 mass school shootings since Catherine died um, in Sandy Hook. And it's this constant cycle where there's a there's a school shooting and then there's this flood of empathy and compassion. Hearts are broken, rightfully so. And almost instantaneously the debate ensues and there's divisiveness and discourse over how this happened. Um, And what I believe is that this whole conversation needs to change. And instead of being focused on divisiveness, if we can have conversations that are rooted in compassion, in coming to a common understanding for the betterment of our children, um, then we begin to change the way that we approach a very complex situation. I really do think that it sounds simplistic. And I'm sure that that there's a lot of people saying, yeah, way, way too uh, Pollyanna-ish. But at the end of the day, we clearly have to do something different. And, and I just believe it's in, in stopping and considering how we're approaching this horrific problem that, that we continue to face. Do you feel like there's been some progress in Catherine's memory since that day 10 years ago in terms of trying to figure out what the problem is and how to stop it. I know there's been more more deaths, unfortunately, but it feels like there has been some progress. There absolutely has been some some progress made. Unfortunately, though, not enough. A final thought. I was 16. Uh, Catherine would have been 16. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because I've often thought, you know, what would a 16-year-old Catherine be like and act like? She was redhead. She had all of the commonalities that people associate with a with a little ginger. Um, she was fiery, determined, and yet she was passionate and with a huge heart. And what would it be like with sixteen year old Catherine? And the reality is is that I stop there because my reality is that Catherine is forever six. And so to to think about what would sixteen be like, it breaks my heart. It's not a reality for me. And you still see pennies though, right? All the time. It's it's uncanny. When I look when I look for them, um, they seem to appear in the most of unexpected ways. For me, Catherine, and, and I'm a huge person of faith, Catherine is safe. Catherine is in heaven, and I will see Catherine again. Jennifer Hubbard, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, just be thankful for what you got. That's kind of, you could kind of sum up my next guest's first book and new book with those very words. Um, The first book, The Book of Awesome, um, was published about uh, several years ago now. It was a massive success. It was number one on the Canadian bestseller list for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, For Neil Pasricha, the author. It was a big deal. He was on all kinds of things. He did a TED talk. He was 
did tons of media and it really took off too. There were walls of awesome. It was all about appreciating the little things in life, those little things that you should appreciate. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's, man, there are a million examples here. Seeing your parents dance, he talks about. It was, you know, when you um, delete an email, delete a subscription email that you've been, that's been annoying you for too long. You know, at one point he talks about, uh, there are many, there are many, many carrying an ice cube tray to the sink without spill, from the sink to the freezer without spilling the water. These are like the little things in life that you do every day. And that you should take some sort of pleasure out of. It came from a tough spot. Lots have been going on in his life when that first book came out. Uh, he had gotten divorced. He'd lost a, a very close friend had taken his own life. Um, and he felt the need to sit down and start writing about good little things that had happened in life. Starting a blog first. Then the blog became a very successful blog. Then the blog became a book. Well, after eight years on bestseller lists, um, the book of awesome has become much more than just a book. It's sort of become a guide for people to find about find out about good things in life. Um, and since then, of course, when you write a book like that and have a blog like that, people are going to share their awesomeness with you as well. So he's had thousands and thousands and thousands of submissions from people who've used the book to uh, to think a little more positively about things. And it's all culminated in the new release, newly released Our Book of Awesome. Um, Neil Fezricha's new book. It isn't really a sequel. It's more of a expansion. If the previous was a sort of a book of memoirs, this is a collection of awesome things that you should be appreciative of. Uh, Neil Fezricha joins us now. Thanks so much for your time. It's the time of the year to be thankful, isn't it? And that, of course, is what this book is all about. It is, and as you can tell, I'm very uncreative. I changed one word in the in the title of my of my sequel. If it works, if it works, and wow, did the first one work? I mean, it grew out of a blog. I know it grew out of some tough times, but what an amazing success! You must have pinched yourself when it when it just what happened when it when it blew up. Yeah. essentially. well, it was it was a wild time. You know, my wife left me. My best friend took his own life. I started a blog called One Thousand Awesome Things dot com. For the next thousand days, I'm writing Ben about playing an old dangerous playground equipment as I used to do down by the lake in Oshawa, Ontario. Right. And I, I wrote about flipping to the cold side of the pillow and getting called up to the dinner buffet first at, the, at a wedding, which for an Indian kid, you know, that's the difference between getting paneer or not getting paneer, you know. <laughs> and so I was writing things to make me smile. The publisher printed, I think, 6,000 copies. Heather Reisman made it a Heather's pick. It, it, it sort of started to go viral in the school system. I think that's partly what did it, where principals were making walls of awesome. Teachers were saying, you know, let's make our own classroom book of awesome. Anytime a teacher reached out to me, I was like, use it. Use the logo. Use the whatever. I just, I just like the idea of us puncturing the negativity bubble that exists and us focusing on something good. And you know what? I think I needed it the most. So yeah. into the pandemic, 10 years later, here I am back again with our book of awesome, a sequel with no overlapping content, once again, to placate and, and heal my own my own anxious thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, I looked at I mean, both your personal situation when you wrote the first one, but also we, we were coming out of the, of, of the great financial crisis, the housing market collapsed in the US. Now we're coming out of a pandemic. It feels like every decade or so, we need to be reminded about what's awesome. 
I, I think so. I mean, the thing is, that's all external forces, too. So, like, Professor Sayula Bamirsky at Stanford University, now the University of California, Davis, wrote a book called The How of Happiness. She posits a model, which she, she holds loosely, but she says, Ben, 50% of her happiness is genetic, 10% of her happiness is circumstances. Okay, that's the, that's the financial collapse. That's what's going right. on on Twitter. That's Elon Musk in the news. And 40% is our intentional activities. So what I always say is, this isn't a why book. Our book of awesome isn't going to teach you why gratitude's important. It's a how book. Right. It's going to help shape your own lens and your own ability to see the small, tiny things that make life sweet. So privately sending a message in the Zoom chat and then seeing your coworker look down and silently smirk. Right. Awesome. And that, you know, how many, how many little passing notes like in third grade did help us get through the Zoom fatigue that we all got over the last three years? Yeah. Or how about completely nailing the timing on that avocado? <laughs> or carrying the ice cube tray from the sink to the freezer without spilling? I know I'm myopic. I'm me. I'm, I'm a 43-year-old, you know, Indian guy living in downtown Toronto. I've gotten remarried. I have little kids. I have my own lens. So part of the reason I called it our book of awesome is because I also want to puncture my own view. I want to get us to get away from the left, right, you know, are, are you progressive? Are you conservative? Are you, are you, what color are you? Where do you live? We're constantly trying with the help of social media algorithms to filter and sort and rank each other. I think we need to get away from that. And so in our book of awesome, we have wheelchair accessible nature trails. We have cooking for a loved one after they get out of jail. We have hearing the three little boys playing above me on Saturday morning above my basement apartment. I'm telling you, Ben, I can't personally relate to any of these things, but when they're sent to me and submitted to me as over 10,000 submissions have since the book of awesome came out, I'm able to notice, hey, this is a unique view and so our book of awesome is trying to build this community viewpoint so it's you know i'm trying to get less and less me oriented that's that's partly why i don't even have my my picture or about the author or acknowledgements or dead. i don't have any of that stuff in the book because i wanted to when it sits on the back of the toilet <laughs> i want i want you to feel like it's your it's yeah, your experience. it's a col- it's a collection of awesomeness right the first one was 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 it was a sort of a journal of awesomeness, and this is a collection of awesomeness, which is in its own way great. It is because, you know what, the 1938 Harvard Adult Development Study is the longest study on happiness ever done. They've been doing it for, well, 80 years now. Every two years, they have the same group of Harvard grads, and they're all men, by the way, I should say. So some people say, you know, the study's not valid, but that, that was what the graduates were. So we have this 80-year-old study, and guess what, Ben? From this study, the number one driver of our happiness over the long term is community. It's connection. That's why people love listening to you every night. We feel a kinship with the friends and the family in our life, and it is a bigger determinant of our long-term happiness than even our health, our income, our nationality, our gender. I'm saying community is key, and I believe social media is fracturing our ability to connect. I believe it. the algorithms actually... What I've found in this book launch, honestly, they turn my real friendships into transactional ones. And I don't like that. And so that's why there's no entries on social media in our book of awesome. And it's not me. I haven't got any. No one's ever submitted me one saying, when, really? you know, when you get no 10 comments said, on your Instagram, no one's ever said that. I, I got nine likes on my tweet. And, and that was that was a, a happy moment for me. No, <laughs> exactly. No, People no. send me things like when your kids don't hear you opening a bag of potato chips. That's a good one. 
Like I finally unsubscribing from an annoying email you've been getting forever. Like when the hand sanitizer at the front of the grocery store isn't that extra slippery kind that never dries. Yeah, there was some bad hand sanitizer during, during the height of the pandemic. I, you know, I was because of course the what's nice about about your work is that unlike many things, and you've said you, you know your parish not priest, right? That that it prompts you to think about those very things in your own life. So I was thinking today about things that I love. When you run out of something and realize that you got another one on sale a few weeks, few weeks earlier and it's right in the clock cupboard, so you just pull it out and replace it. Hey, I do that with deodorant. I love that. I when love it's that. on sale at Shoppers, I'm the guy getting six Old Spices. <laughs> exactly. So when you run out, you're like, oh, no, I've run, I've run out of deodorant. You're like, oh, I have another one. It's just I have another one for three ninety nine upstairs. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's those little things, right? Um, tell me about the idea, though. I mean, it, it's always the idea of putting out the second one and what you'd like people to get from it. Um, I mean, clearly you talked about going through the pandemic and all the different things that we realized. And certainly social media is a lot different than it was when the first one came out. I think our mental health has deteriorated. Well, here's the, you nailed it. We live in the most abundant time ever in human civilization. You can press a button in a car from wherever you are. will whisk you, pick you up. And before you get home, you can press three more buttons and there'll be a hot, chicken and fries waiting on your porch. Are you kidding me? We live richer than kings lived a hundred years ago. And yet at the same time, Ben, we've got higher than ever rates of anxiety, loneliness, depression, and suicide. Okay. And I can go into the numbers and all these things. If you want me to, I'm happy. Look, National Institute of Mental Health says 43% of us have a depressive symptom. There's reports in the New York Times Magazine that one in three college students has clinical anxiety. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy in the United States is saying loneliness is the next big epidemic. You know the Surgeon General usually warns us of cigarettes, obesity. Now Surgeon General Vivek Murthy is saying, no, no, it's it's loneliness that's more dangerous to us than alcoholism or a pack of cigarettes. So why in this era of abundance do we have the worst mental health? We have to talk about this as a community. Books are a very good vehicle to talk about this because they pull us away from our screens. By the way, 57% of North Americans read zero books last year. Okay, that's an all-time high. We're five hours and 34 minutes a day on our phones. So what we need to do, and it's not just me saying this. I'm, I'm quoting the research from, the, from these smarty pants people, a lot brighter than me. Look, we have all kinds of issues in society. Part of what our Book of Awesome is meant to do is to point us at a tiny bird singing its heart out on a power wire above the abandoned gas station. Birds Canada just tweeted that one today. I guess they like that one, right? Well, uh, getting yeah. us back into nature, into community, into connection, into food. There's a reason why I put seeing your parents dance in here. Because it's also about nostalgia, about love, about poignancy, and about joking around sometimes too. When you when you look at at what you'd like people to get out of this one, because I think when you I, I gather when you wrote the first one, you didn't know, right? I mean, you'd had some, you'd obviously had a lot of interaction with your blog, but you sort of put it out there, and and then it, people reacted to it so wonderfully. Yeah, um, you know, with the walls of awesome and so on. What would you like people to get out of this one? In a way, it's a bit of a pickle answering that question because you're right. They printed 6,000 copies of the Book of Awesome. It sold over a million copies. In a way, it found its people. Ten years later, I'm wondering if those people are still out there. I don't know which teacher is going to say, let's do a Book of Awesome for our classroom. They might listen to this. They might say, I want to do awesome things. Great. Use them. We made a teacher's guide. My wife wrote it. She's a teacher. You know, We put it on ourbookofawesome.com. You can download it for free. I just want the book to find its people. I just want this community of 
you know, optimistic tinged mindset. You don't got to be optimistic. I actually don't think I am. To be honest with you, I think that I use this material because I know the research to cultivate a positive mindset. I'm calling our book of awesome medicine. It's a pill for anyone that's feeling a bit anxious, a bit overwhelmed. A woman emailed me today. She said, "I was reading our book of awesome last night before bed because I was anxious and I couldn't sleep." Thank you. I just read a couple of these things and just resettled me. Well, guess what? That's what it does for me. <laughs> That's what yeah. I'm writing them for because I'm naturally anxious myself. I was going to say, Neil, you couldn't write the you couldn't write what you write if you didn't feel the opposite of it. You just couldn't. My my growth is really contentment. <laughs> Yeah. You know, yeah. I need to chill out and maybe not stop obsessively writing things down for years and years and years. But because I have this, you know, wonky thing in my brain that makes me compulsively for 15 years, Ben, write down awesome things, peeling a hard-boiled egg and getting a big chunk of shell off all at once. 30-second surprise neck and shoulder massages while cooking dinner at the end of a long day. It is, you know, it is the little things, right? I mean, Neil, we uh, be that, you know, it 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 is a remarkable reminder of why we should be thankful, why should we should stop and appreciate the good little things that happen to us each and every day. And, and listen, it's not just you saying that. Uh, just to say, um, we got an area in our brain called our visual cortex. Inside that area is area seventeen. If you peel a hard-boiled egg and the big shell comes up, area seventeen lights up. If you write about it, read about it, or talk about it, it lights up again. If you share it, it lights up again. In this day and age, with the oppressive algorithms all around us, we got to take control over our mindset. And when we double and triple our positivity, it helps us become a happier person. And that, my friends, leads to everything else being better in our lives: our connections, our creativity, our productivity. It goes on and on and on. I think I feel like a better son, a better husband, a better dad, a better brother because I'm working on. Cultivating a positive mindset—that's what it's all about. At the end of the day, yeah. And as you proved the first time out, and no doubt this time too, um, it's contagious. So there you go. Thanks for spreading it, uh, Neil Pasricha. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Thanks, everybody. Well, welcome to the first of our monthly segments—a little more true crime when we look at um, Canadian cases that have been high-profile, unsolved, that remain a mystery, and perhaps none more so right now than this one. Uh, it was five years ago tomorrow that billionaire generic drug titan Barry Sherman and his wife Honey were found murdered in their Toronto home. Uh, Sherman was the uh, chairman and CEO of a company called Apotex. He was estimated to be the 12th wealthiest person in this country. There was no forced entry, as far as police have said, there was no forced entry at the home. But early reports, and this is where it all kind of gets off on the wrong foot, early reports suggested a murder-suicide. But that was quickly dispelled. Six weeks after the bodies were found, police declared that a double murder investigation had indeed begun. Here is Toronto Police back in 2017. We have sufficient evidence to describe this as a double homicide. Honey and Barry Sherman were found deceased in the lower-level pool area hanging by belts from a poolside railing. I should say that was early 2018. And even then, as you'll hear more about coming up, the Sherman family was frustrated by how police were handling the case. They hired their own private investigator. For them, it's been difficult to balance their patience with their frustration with us and our investigation, not unlike any other family 
who has suffered such a sudden and profound loss. And yet here we are five years later. The murders remain a mystery. Despite 250 interviews, so say Toronto police, and 1,000 investigative actions, there's been video of a person with a strange gait that they believe may be a suspect. We just don't know. Police still have made no arrests and named no suspects, although they do say the case is active and ongoing. So for our first installment of A Little More True Crime, joining me now is Toronto Star Chief Investigative Reporter Kevin Donovan. He's author of The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on today. Five years. It goes by quickly. I remember in my crime reporting days, you know, the anniversaries would come up quickly on you and, and you sort of look back at the case, what it was like when you first got the assignment. Uh, it must feel like uh, we know so much and know so little five years later. I think it's fair to say that every time I learn something new, I learn something that I don't know. And uh, and it's in, it's in multiples, it, it seems. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of ground that, that I've been able to cover even since the publication of the book in 2019. And here we are, as you say, five years in, still going. Remind me of the circumstances, because we go back to December of 2017, and a few people, people may have known the name, uh, Barry Sherman, they may have known the name Apotex, but this was a, a strange circumstances from the, from the get-go. Yes, and I was aware of Barry Sherman because at the time I was managing our investigative team and a couple of my uh, the reporters on the team had done some stories on problems at Apotex. And so I was, I was aware of him, but knew nothing else and, and didn't even know the name of his wife. What happens is on the uh, Friday uh, late afternoon news breaks uh, in Toronto and, and ultimately around the, the world that two billionaires, a billionaire couple uh, among the richest people in Canada had been found dead in their Toronto home in the basement swimming pool room. And, and, and quite quickly, I, I didn't get involved in the story for another three weeks, but looking back on the coverage quite quickly, the story comes out uh, broken by the Toronto Sun, actually, that it is murder-suicide, according to Toronto police sources. And Toronto Star and everybody else uh, talked to their sources, and that was a story that came out. And my first assignment was, was it a murder-suicide? Yeah, because that, as we know, anytime police choose a certain direction or see a case a certain way from the get-go, it does impact the early days of the investigation. And I gather that's precisely what happened here. Yes, and it, it did. And, and you can see how it develops from the Friday evening. The bodies are discovered on a, on a Friday. We're going to learn into it that they actually were murdered on the Wednesday. But on the, the Friday evening, uh, a junior homicide detective stands out front of the Sherman home in front of a bunch of reporters and, and says the following. Brandon Price says, we're not looking for any outstanding suspects, calming fears in the neighborhood, and there's no sign of forced entry. And, and that telegraphs to veteran reporters at the scene who confirm it with sources that they're looking at murder-suicide. And as, as we now know, that that was wrong. But for the next six weeks, the police are asking questions like why would Barry have killed his wife? And they're not asking questions like who would have killed the billionaires? Which at some point, I mean, and, and not to fast forward too much, but before long, Toronto police also begin to look at the at the other option, right? I mean, I suppose within an investigation, they would need to look at the other option, uh, which would be this was a double murder. They start looking at it, but, and I had a role in them starting to to look at double murder because 
what happens after the, the police do their autopsy, the Sherman family hire their own forensic pathologist who does a second set of autopsies and, 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 and determines quite quickly that it's a double murder. But what's interesting is that the Sherman family doesn't tell the police that. There's no press conference. They're still upset that the police are pursuing murder-suicide. And I, through my sources, five weeks into the case, get the results of that autopsy. We write a story, put it on the front page, and then the Toronto police uh, get the word from up on high, you better talk to this second pathologist who the police had never talked to. And they talked to him, and then the police held a press conference right after that, confirming what was in our story. It's a double murder. And now police have to change to do a 360. Now they start asking who would have done it. But homicide cases, first 48 hours, are key. They've blown six weeks. That is highly exceptional that that something like that would happen, specifically with such a high-profile case. It's shocking to me that they missed all these clues. I mean, the signs of the the Barry and Honey were were tied up, their wrists were tied, and then no ties found at the scene, that the ligatures that killed them is not the belt, it's something else. They missed all this. And my homicide sources say the problem is the junior pathologist. My pathologist sources say the problem is the homicide cops. Everybody's pointing fingers. Eventually, they get it sorted out. But again, time is lost. So people understand, though, there was another very high profile case going on in the background here that may have had an impact on how much or how many resources were being poured in to this other very high profile case. That's right. There was the MacArthur homicide investigation that coincidentally was was coming to fruition right at that time. Now, I, I've talked to people who worked on that case, and they've said, no, it just there's different teams that, that do different things, and this didn't affect it. But I, I have to think that it, it had there, there was a resource issue for the police. The other thing is that anybody who watches crime shows, uh, they'll see that the, you know, the first people on the scene are usually homicide investigators, and, and whichever top cop is assigned to the case goes to the, the scene. The officer assigned the Sherman case doesn't go to the scene when the bodies are there. And in fact, she doesn't go for three more days. And it's just one of a cascade of, of errors that the Toronto police made. And, and I would argue are, are still making in, in their investigation of this case. As a reminder to listeners, uh, Bruce MacArthur was uh, a serial killer that had been stalking gay men in Toronto's gay village and was, and was then caught, or at least a, an arrest was announced, I believe, a month later. We undertook these investigative steps, exhaustive investigative steps, um, to identify this individual. Uh, and now having gotten to the point where we have not been able to do so with these videos, uh, this is now the prudent time to release this to the public and seek the public's assistance. We were able to eliminate uh, pretty well every other person um, on the, the video footage uh, that we've obtained. Um, and so we're left with a, a, a very glaring sort of unknown with this individual that requires an explanation if there's a legitimate one. Kevin Donovan is with us this half hour. He is author of The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman, the chief investigative reporter at the Toronto Star. He's been covering uh, this case for many years now. And uh, we're talking about where we're at five years later, and perhaps one of the most high profile unsolved murders in this country right now, or murder cases in this country. So we know what happened the first six weeks. Police um, found themselves with a theory that it ended up being not true uh, and were then caught trying to catch up. 
since then, there have been some advances, but you uncovered at one point that they had held on to a piece of evidence for years about a potential suspect without ever asking the public about them. Again, something very strange. Yes. Within, I would say, seven weeks of the bodies being found, the police have collected a lot of surveillance video from people's door and uh, garage cameras in the area. And they're going through them. There's a lot of information. It's the equivalent of, I think, 2000 HD movies that they have collected from around the Sherman home. And they find that there is one individual, and they call this person the walking man, and nobody can figure out who this person is. The person is five foot six to five foot nine, probably more on the five foot six. He's wearing an overcoat. He's walking with what the police say is a condition called drop foot, where he raises his right foot up as he walks. It's a distinctive pattern of walking. And he's in the area of the Sherman home exactly when the murders are committed, around roughly around 10 to 11 o'clock that Wednesday night. This is two days before the bodies are found. They get this person on the video. They ask people around the community, no, he's not a known person. No, he wasn't out walking a dog. And they think he's the killer. That's early on in 2018. The police don't come out with that for four years. And they come out with it as a bit of a, what I describe as a Hail Mary, using a football term. And they're saying, do you know this person? And the public doesn't know this person. I would argue that bring that out at the time when it happens, when people's memories are fresh. They bring it out four years later because they, as it turns out, they spent four years trying to see if this person was carrying a cellular telephone and was communicating with with somebody. And they've come up completely empty handed. That's the story of the walking man. They think he's the killer or lookout or something like that. And they don't know who he is. And spent four years trying to figure it out before asking the public if someone with this unique gait would be recognizable. Because one would imagine, I mean, again, though, since then, the public has not helped identify this person, I gather. No, the, the, the public has called the police. I, I've certainly had a number of calls from people saying, I think I know that person. I think it's my uncle. Like just cra- crazy things that people have come out with. And I've had doctors call saying, yeah, I might have seen a patient at some point that looks like that. Nobody knows who the person is. Recently, I was in court with the detective asking questions as part of a process to unseal uh, some of the police documents to put scrutiny on the case. And I said, well, did you check the airport that night? Did you go to the airport to check security surveillance to see if, you know, you think this is an international crime? They've said it is. Do you see somebody like that going through security? The police say no, but why would we have done that? They say that's just 101 to me. Yeah, I remember covering the disappearance of Cecilia Jung way back in 2003 and calling the police and saying, Well, did you check the security cameras on the 407? And of course, the answer was yes, right? Yes, of course we did. <laughs> it's, uh, but I guess at that point, they didn't know what they were looking for. You mentioned at one point that they found no forensic evidence at the scene that helped them help point them in the right direction. Yes, and that's something I've, I've just come across recently in a release of documents that they processed the scene and nothing came out of that, that that steered them in the direction of an individual. Speaking about forensics, though, and, and problems in the police investigation, one of the key things that you do at the start of an investigation is you want to exclude everybody who naturally is at a crime scene. So, you know, the officers, the forensic people, the firefighters, people who might 
respond first to a to a call from 911 but you also want to exclude people that that worked in the home so the cleaning person the realtor who discovered the bodies the personal trainer who was there the morning that they died and make sure that we have their fingerprints and their DNA please don't do that for 9 months we are taking some comfort in knowing that you two are together forever and neither of you had to suffer like we are suffering now you were like a lock and a key each pretty useless on your own but together you unlocked the whole world for yourselves and for us and for so many others we promise to carry on your legacy of greatness and giving from now until forever to my father you are my hero I don't mean that like how other I don't mean that like how all dads are heroes to their sons. You were a real life superhero. When I was a kid in elementary school, we did these book reports on great Canadians. And I would always choose someone like Wayne Gretzky or Terry Fox. I didn't know at that time that you were one of those types of people. You privately told our family that you had been appointed to the order of canada the greatest recognition of canadian greatness you were always so humble but i know how proud you were to get that news and how excited you were to finally be recognized for what you are i don't know what will happen now with that award if anything but to our family you were always the greatest canadian the toronto star's chief investigator reporter kevin donovan is with us he's author of the billionaire murders the mysterious deaths of barry and honey sherman we're coming up on the 5th anniversary of those murders they remain unsolved perhaps one of canada's most high profile unsolved crimes at this point Kevin, you've had a lot of opportunity to talk to the family. Uh, clearly, any time there is a high-profile murder of this case, the family dynamic is looked at. What did you find? The first thing I found is that the family didn't want to talk. They didn't want to talk to any of the media. They didn't want to talk to me. And it was a long process to get, uh, first of all, the friends of Barry and Honey Sherman to speak to me, which uh, they did. And, and I'm on quite good terms and keep in touch with all of them these days. The family was more difficult. Ultimately, talked to people around the edges of the family. And then I ended up interviewing one of the daughters of the Shermans and the son, Jonathan. And at the same time, I had access through various sources to a lot of the, the dynamics, as you describe it, the, and the correspondence between them. And it's clear to me that certainly I would not describe this as a healthy family relationship. People aren't getting along that well. Barry and Honey, I think, have to take the brunt of a bit of that because Honey grew up, she was born in a displaced persons camp after the Holocaust. Her parents lived in a slave camp during the war, and she had a tough upbringing, and she was known to have a bit of a, a sharp tongue, understandably, I would say. And she wanted kids to work. She, she didn't want to give them everything, although they were billionaires. Barry was different. Barry was a soft touch. He solved problems by giving out money. 
and uh, giving out money to to a lot of people, including the kids. They called it the Bank of Barry. If you look at the the holdings of the the Sherman children, the, the, you don't see conventional mortgages. It's it's money that's being advanced from Barry, and so so yeah. There's a lot of discord that the everything really came to a head about a year after the murders when, and this is according to Jonathan, who I've interviewed, who's the the son. He says that uh, his sister. Alexandra believes he was somehow involved in, in the murder. And I've written about this for the star and Jonathan says to me, you know, you know, I've got, I've had nothing to do with it, but she believes that, that I am responsible in some way. And so there's shifting dynamics among the four children. I think right now the Jonathan is a bit of an Island from his three sisters. It, it's, it's unfortunate and sad, obviously that, uh, the family that stood up at the funeral and announced that they were going to be united, uh, now not united at all. Obviously, the police looked into both the family dynamic, the commercial interests. I mean, uh, you know, Barry Sherman was a very, very wealthy man who uh, heading a very successful company. Did they ever find any idea of who could have a motive for this? Was there any theories, working theories about what may have possessed someone to want this elderly, very wealthy couple dead? Well, I only know what I've been able to find out. So, and I don't know what the theories were, what they have determined and, and excluded. That, by the way, the police say that they've not cleared anybody. They they're looking at all sorts of people. As far as the question about finance, the, the police say that they believe this was a financially motivated crime. I don't believe personally that this is a big case of big pharma, you know, pharmaceutical companies rubbing out Barry Sherman because. Why would they kill Barry uh, when they are always suing him? And also, why kill Honey? So I don't think that's the case. The police have also said that the estate of Barry Sherman, the estate being his holdings uh, and ultimately who got what and who didn't get what, uh, that's part of their case. And they won't say why. And that's the thing that they have been the most secretive about, that one issue why the estate is important to them. And I, I've argued to, to try and get that un, unsealed. And so far, they won't say the importance of it. But, you know, Barry left his his wealth to his four children. It is possible that there's perhaps somebody else who thought they were due some money and didn't get it. Yeah. I, what happened to the company? Oh, the company was sold quite recently. Apotex was was sold by the estate to a company from New York that is not in the pharmaceutical business. They're in the chemical business. And so they uh, have decided that they're going to take Apotex. I think probably the hope of the government is that they're going to keep the operations in Canada. Apotex, uh, at the time of Barry Sherman's death, had 11,000 employees, 6,000 of them in Canada. It's a little smaller now, but still there's a lot, probably about 5,000 employees. And that has to go through regulatory control. But very shortly, I would say by the end of next year, that company will no longer be owned by the Shermans. And that leaves you know, the estate to be finally split up, uh, billions of dollars are being divided amongst uh, the four children and, and nobody else. And what was surprising to me, Barry Sherman was very generous in his life, gave out hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and Honey, his wife, worked tirelessly as a, as a charity, uh, on charity boards and, and as a very active fundraiser. There's nothing in the will 
for charity. And so now it's up to the four children to carry on their parents' legacy of giving. Yeah. For the family, the most perplexing and upsetting aspect of the investigation was the failure to recognize the obvious, that the bodies of Barry and Honey Sherman were staged post-mortem in a very deliberate manner. This entire process has caused needless additional pain and suffering to the Sherman family. As was stated earlier, the Sherman family understands the pressures and responsibilities that are placed upon the Toronto Police Service. Regrettably, it has become clear to them that despite the active pursuit of search warrants and exploring other investigative avenues, police resources have neither been properly managed nor effectively utilized. Therefore, as this new initiative, as an attempt to reignite an investigation, the Sherman family has asked me to announce the offer of a reward of up to $10 million for information leading to the apprehension and prosecution of those responsible for the murders of Honey and Barry Sherman. A call centre has been established to collect tips and information 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The toll-free number, North American Reward Line, is 1-833-668-0001. And the international number is 011-905-849-7373. Kevin Donovan is with us this uh, hour. We're talking about the deaths, the murders of Barry and Honey Sherman. Kevin is both the chief investigative reporter at the Toronto Star. He's also the author of The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Um, you mentioned this in, in several articles uh, that there was an idea of an international flair here, that somehow there are other countries that believe that police in Toronto believe that the answers to this mystery may lie abroad. What do we know about that? This came out uh, in my last cross-examination uh, in, I think it was in October, of uh, the lone uh, full-time detective working on the case. And, and he said that They've pretty much exhausted the their domestic investigation into this case, but something he won't say what has caused them to look internationally. And so, what they're doing is a series of requests. Think of them like a search warrant, but but internationally, a request for information, some kind of data from five countries. Of course, they won't name the five countries. Two of them are among 35 countries Canada has a treaty with to share information in a criminal probe. The other three are countries that we don't have a relationship with. And as I've learned through this process, it's going to take a long time. It could take well over a year to get this information. And it's not a straight line between a detective in Toronto and one in country X. They've got to go through the Canadian Justice Department to make a request that goes overseas and goes down to the local authorities and then comes back. So, so I, I think this is yet another Hail Mary. I haven't heard of any proof that this is actually something that they have a working theory of, but it's possible that they have maybe believed that the walking man was paid by somebody and that person resides in another country. I'm going to keep probing this, but, but right now, I don't know which countries there are, and I don't really know what the police are looking for, but it's some sort of data. 
they're still actively investigating this. There's still a detective assigned full-time to this case? There is. For five years, there's been one detective assigned full-time to this case, a Detective Constable Yim, who was seconded to the homicide squad. He does not go out interviewing people. His job is to manage this very lengthy search warrant process. And, and I mentioned earlier the, the, the cellular telephone tracking that they tried to do for the walking man. So his job, Detective Yim's job, was to, to make the request to the telecom, whether it be Bell or Rogers, uh, tell us all of them, uh, ask them for their data for that time period, for that area of Toronto, and then he's got to go through it. You can imagine a mind-numbing task looking for an electronic needle in a haystack. Yeah, it's That's not what law and order, right? It's not law and order. Right. Yeah. And what he's doing right now on this new request is preparing requests to go to Ottawa to send overseas. Uh, and by the way, if I say overseas, it could also be the United States. Right. That would be a possibility. They're obviously not overseas. And so he's trying to get that permission and then whatever he gets back, he will look through it and maybe come up with that uh, proverbial needle. You know, what keeps you going on this one? Do you, do you think in your heart of hearts we'll ever know? When I was asked, when the book came out in 2019, would I ever know? I, I felt a, an arrest was around the, the corner. I, I think we will know one day, who the who, at least who the police think it is. I, I think I'm going to get that information unsealed sometime in the next uh, year, I would I expect. But will there be an arrest? It, to me, it doesn't feel like it right now. But, you know, I was watching the other night, uh, again, uh, the uh, the press conference that the family's lawyer, Brian Greenspan, put out a year after it. They put out a $10 million reward, which is still out there. Mm-hmm. And in that request, Brian Greenspan said, you know, we're trying to light a fire under the Toronto police. We're, and we're trying to say, basically, to somebody out there in the underworld, you could get wealthy by helping somebody go to to jail for this case. And I'm starting to wonder if maybe that is ultimately going to be the solution. Somebody will know something and they'll come forward. Beyond that, I don't see that this, the legwork they're doing right now is going to get them anywhere, but I'm happy to be proven wrong. For them to say that, you know, we've, we've exhausted everything forensically. I'm not sure that they have, but One of the other things that I've learned about this process is that there's no mechanism to scrutinize a homicide investigation. There is in something like the MacArthur case or or the Paul Bernardo case where there ultimately is a commission that looks into it. But generally, we have to trust the police to do a good job, and there's no way to check if they did, except for this process that I'm undergoing. Which is essentially involves you requesting documents from the police and then going to court to argue why you should get them. So in other words, this has been a painstaking process for you to try to uncover more about what exactly happened in this. You're essentially scrutinizing the investigation. Yeah, I, I am. And, and you know, doing it on behalf of the Toronto Star and, and, and the public. And, and I think it's important because beyond this very high profile case, there are unfortunately and sadly many other homicides in big cities. And I think it is the job of the media to scrutinize the police. And if they haven't done a good job, find that out, put it on the front page, and hopefully in the next case, they'll do a better job. That's just natural. And in most businesses, and Toronto Police is not a business, but in most big organizations, those processes exist. They don't with the police. 
And for you, I mean, uh, will you, will you keep going? There's still so much to learn, I guess. Yes. Yeah. And, and I will keep going. I, I, uh, I, uh, the judge on the case is retiring, but I said to Justice Pringle, I'm not going anywhere. And she, she chuckled. Uh, I, I am going to see this through and see what more I, I can learn uh, about it. And, and, and also what it tells me about all sorts of other worlds, the world of, of crime, of pharmaceuticals, of, of philanthropy. Uh, the case touches on a lot of different issues. And of course, at the heart of it is what attracts people to it the most. I think it's a whodunit. It is, and it remains one five years later. Kevin Donovan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. 